0: This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew Plant. Each week on this program, we bring together two researchers from vastly different disciplines in an attempt to build bridges, make connections, and, if all is going well, have one of those aha moments. Joining us today in studio is Shane McFarlane, who grew up hiking with his father and brothers in the local and regional parks around Philadelphia and took that wilderness wanderlust with him in a career in archaeology, paleontology, and evolutionary anthropology. He now studies the ecology of cooperation and conflict in small-scale societies at the University of Utah. Shane, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. Thanks, Matthew. Also joining us in studio is Claire Lizer, a native of Salt Lake City and former All-State volleyball player. She's also a lover of the outdoors, which I'm guessing has something to do with the fact that she has stuck close to Utah during her education and career. She is now a research analyst at the Utah Population Database at the Huntsman Cancer Institute, and recently scored her first authorship for a study connecting air pollution and miscarriages. Claire, thanks for being with us.
1: Thanks, great to be here.
0: First up today, the cultural anthropologist. Those are the sounds of the Amazonian region of Ecuador. And the soundtrack of the lives of the Waurani people, a tribal society that includes some communities that have rejected all contact with the outside world. That might sound like a peaceful existence, but some anthropologists believe that, until fairly recently, the Waurani might have had one of the highest rates of homicide of any society, in large part because of a cultural practice of small-scale warfare known as lethal raiding. Back in 2000 and 2001, a group of American researchers traveled to Ecuador and interviewed the elder Walrani about their family connections and the recollections of raids they had participated in. They gathered data on about 50 raids from 1917 to 1970. Shane McFarland, what made your group want to go
2: back and restudy the data? Data on warfare is really hard to come by in small-scale societies. I got lucky. The researchers who had the data had seen another publication of mine that had come out that analyzed similar kinds of questions that they had. I jumped at the opportunity immediately because I knew that coming across another data set that is comparable is going to be virtually impossible. It was a really unique uh, chance to extract every last bit of meaning out of their data set.
0: And it's impossible because these societies, well, there's... Fewer and fewer of them, they're harder to contact, they're harder to get a hold of. And I mean, a lot of these people have started to assimilate over the years as modernization is set in all
2: across the world, right? Exactly. And as they become uh, more modernized and contacted via national governments, police forces, and what have you, people basically stop engaging in these lethal raids.
0: So these really old cultural practices, they don't exist in the same way
2: anymore. Very rarely.
0: So tell me about what was in the data set. What did they go out and what did they find out?
2: They interviewed living people about their own recollections of the warfare that they practiced in when they were younger. And they also interviewed them about relatives who have passed on about the warfare that they engaged in. And so they collected data on, like, the timing of these events, the number of people that engaged in these lethal uh, raids, and the number of people who they killed. No, I can't remember what I did
0: last Thursday, but these people could remember raids that had happened decades and decades earlier?
2: Yeah. I mean, these are really traumatic events. And they kind of are burned into your memory once you've engaged in them. When these warriors engaged in these uh, lethal practices, they would personalize their weaponry. And so individuals who had been affected by these raids in the past also had a memory of who was actually doing these things to them. So yeah, they have a great recollection for these really catastrophic events that occurred in their past. That makes sense.
0: So one of the long time assumptions about warfare and tribal societies is that It would include lineal kin, this is like brothers and uncles and close cousins. But you and your fellow researchers noticed something interesting about the relationships between the raiders. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah, really the idea of the band of brothers is from the idea that basically small groups of men in these small societies would be fighting alongside with their brothers, their fathers, maybe their uncles and grandfathers. And when we started looking at the composition of these raiding parties, we started to realize that it was not really like composed of these bands of brothers instead it was guys who fit this cultural category of being a ideal marriage exchange partner when we put the pieces together it looked like yeah these guys were selectively going to raid with guys that once they've raided they could then exchange marriage partners with one another whether it's daughters or sisters
0: so do you think that people were joining raids to build families or were raids undertaken and then because of the alliances that were formed during the raids families were created out of that?
2: No, that's a really great question. What we found was that basically the bulk of the men who were engaging in these warfare events, they were not married previously to their raid partners, daughters, or kin. There is a small set of subcases where males were basically married to a female first, and then his affines, that is his, like, parent-in-laws, would potentially coerce them into war as well. And I use potentially coercion, because it's not like they're giving them a fine or penalizing them in some real way. But for anyone who's married and interacts with in-laws, there are subtle ways that people can get you to do things you might not want to do.
0: So the like in-law problems are as old as tribal societies?
2: Without a doubt. <laughs> Your research has also suggested that the rating
0: parties were evidence of the importance of friendship in human societies. Can you talk about that a bit?
2: Yeah. I mean, friendship is a really unique relationship that we see in humans that we don't find in a lot of other organisms. And so one of the questions is, you know, how did it, the evolution of friendship occur in humans? And we speculate that potentially the origins of the friendship relationship is that it's built through a combination of alliance building, especially if you're looking for a marriage partner. And as a result, these guys then are required to go find other kinds of men that they can need to make alliances with to get them access to these hard to find resources, like potentially a marriage partner. So we think that potentially the origins of friendship lie in the alliances that men navigate in the context of something like conflict or warfare.
0: Now, was this uh, the, the Waorani, was it only men going to war? Did women also participate in these raids?
2: In the many small-scale societies, we almost find that warfare is exclusively uh, the domain of men. That's on offensive attacking. So when men go out to raid another group, it's always men that do this. However, when it's something in the lines of defensive raiding, you will find evidence of females sometimes participating as well as children.
0: Your study examined the role of small-scale warfare in a tribal society. Does- it say something about the sorts of warfare that we're
2: more accustomed to in our world, do you think? We think the origins of all warfare is kind of embedded in these small-scale societies. Understanding the motivations that males have for going to war can tell us something about the motivations for joining warfare today in our modern militaries.
0: What made you want to study small-scale warfare? What was the connection?
2: Yeah, uh, I mean... Cooperation and conflict is a constant feature of our lives and understanding how to promote more cooperation and decrease the amount of conflict to me is a really important thing. As an anthropologist, our view is almost always situated on small scale societies because we think that this is how humans have basically lived for the majority of humans existence as a species on the planet. And if you understand something about how humans live in small-scale societies, we can see how maybe some of the ways that we've designed our own lives are inefficient or incorrect given how our brains are designed and how we kind of interact with our own social world. By studying these small-scale societies, we think we might get a better understanding of how the human brain actually works and how a healthy social environment might be constituted.
0: These are like anthropological building blocks. Exactly, exactly. So some Waorani communities have chosen to avoid contact with the outside world and others have integrated into the broader Ecuadorian society. And this has happened and it is happening in indigenous communities all over the world. But these communities are something of a window into human society before urbanization, before industrialization. Is our opportunity for understanding these cultural and sociological building blocks starting to close?
2: Yeah, it is. And there's a lot of what's known as like salvage ethnography, going to populations in the world that have minimal contact and understanding how these individuals live because it is a window into the past. Now, obviously, these aren't like museum relics, but they might be our best bet at estimating what it was like to live, you know, 100,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago.
0: And I suppose there's also an opportunity to go back into old data sets like you guys did and extract additional information. Is there a lot of that stuff out there?
2: No. Uh, In fact, some of my colleagues and I were kind of lamenting recently that we can only think off the top of our head of about three or four of these data sets that has information on the composition of warfare parties in small scale societies prior to the intervention of the state. Uh, And if there are data sets out there, I highly recommend someone coming to contact me (laughs) because I'd love to get access to more of these. They're really rare.
0: There might be one out there like in a box somewhere. You never know. That's Shane McFarlane, whose recent study in Proceedings of the Royal Society B Biological Sciences suggests that marriage opportunities may have played a big role in who tribal warriors decided to go to war with. Shane, can you stick around and talk to our next guest at the end of the program? Of course. Next up, the environmental health analyst
2: Clean air, no excuses! Clean air, no excuses! Clean air!
1: No excuses!
0: That was the rallying cry of protesters who gathered at the Utah State Capitol back in 2014, demanding action from lawmakers to address the dangerously polluted air in the state's urbanized valleys, which has some of the worst air quality in the nation. There's no lack of research demonstrating the connection between bad air and bad health outcomes, particularly for individuals already suffering from lung or heart disease. But a recent study suggests there's another group that is put at risk every time the air quality index shows the air is unhealthy, unborn children. In a new report in the journal Fertility and Sterility, researchers demonstrated that women living in Utah's urban core had a significantly higher chance of miscarriage following a short-term exposure to elevated air pollution. Now, to put this into context, many doctors advise their patients to abstain from alcohol during pregnancy altogether because even light drinking, one or two drinks per week, can raise the risk of miscarriage by 5%. Claire Lizer, you and your colleagues found a 16% higher chance of miscarriage following a short-term exposure to elevated air pollution. That's terribly frightening.
1: There definitely needs to be more work done looking at this question, but the results from this study are very interesting, right? We, I think we know a lot about Um, birth outcomes related to air pollution. Air pollution is associated with preterm birth and stillbirth. The novel thing about this study is that it's the short-term air pollution. And so it is amazing that we were able to see such a large effect over such a small amount of time, in this case, seven days. How
0: did you get interested in looking at the association between air quality and miscarriage?
1: Well, I'm from Salt Lake City originally. So I think many people in Salt Lake were concerned about the air pollution here. Every winter we go through these inversion episodes so we, we can see it visually how bad the air quality gets here. For me, living here my whole life, I haven't seen it really improve at all and every winter it just seems to get worse and worse. This particular project got started um, with my collaborators at the University of Utah Emergency Department they noticed just anecdotal evidence that they were seeing higher numbers of women coming in with miscarriages during these inversion episodes.
0: This group you studied, they were all women who sought care at a local emergency room?
1: So that is one thing to keep in mind with this study is that we're really seeing the most severe cases.
0: Well, what that means is that this could just be the tip of the iceberg, right?
1: Yeah, that's correct. So The benefit of our study design is that we are comparing cases to themselves, basically. So although we are only seeing the most severe cases, that's only going to limit the absolute number.
0: And even though your data correlated with the anecdotal observations that were happening in these emergency rooms, was it, did it still feel shocking to you? Because when I read it, it just, it hits me upside the head.
1: Like I said, I think we know a lot about the effects of air pollution on birth outcomes in general. But I was surprised to see it related to the NO2. However, that's related to car emissions. So maybe that's not such a surprising finding after all.
0: And it happened really quickly, right? Right. This with, you, like you said, like within seven days. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So that's the really novel thing about this study is that it is such a short amount of time. I mean, we're looking at your exposure seven days before this event, Um, and three days before this event, and we're still seeing a signal.
0: Wow. What are the next steps in this research?
1: I think for me, uh, the next step would be to sort of test for varying exposure times. The real limitation of this study is that we don't know the gestational age of the fetus. I think if we could get ultrasounds for some of these women to see and test um, their exposure based on trimester or the age of the fetus, then I think that would give us a lot more information.
0: You've been involved in several studies, but this is your first paper as a first author, and it's gotten a lot of attention. How's that been?
1: Yeah, it's been really crazy. It's um, it's really, obviously, very exciting for me, um, and I'm really proud of the results.
0: Utah's largely a conservative state with a legislature that is largely made up of lawmakers who are members of a Christian faith, and... We know that conservative Christians often care deeply about unborn children. Do you think that this study has the potential to help build some bridges across political
1: divide? Yeah, I really do. I think um, in Utah, we really care about fertility, right? So I I do hope that it sort of gets the right people's attention to realize that this is a big problem and that family is one of the values of our state, right? And so I hope that policymakers are really taking note of, of the results of this study.
0: Have you been contacted by any policymakers yet or people who want to use your research for that?
1: Mm-mm.
0: But they not should yet. contact you.
1: Yet. Yeah, they should.
0: You're also a young researcher. You're in your mid-20s. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if your research findings have impacted the way you think about your own future in terms of potentially having a family someday.
1: I don't have any plans in the immediate future to have a family, but I do think, knowing what I know about air pollution, I would be concerned if I were to be pregnant during the wintertime here. And what effect that would have on my developing fetus, not even just for miscarriage, but for other outcomes such as preterm birth or stillbirth.
0: And you're a researcher, not a medical doctor, but do Mm -hmm. you, like, you have friends probably who are thinking about this, maybe family members. What would you tell them about, like, what should people do when the air spikes if they're they're pregnant?
1: It's hard. I mean, I think... If you are able to afford a mask or an air filter or something like that, then that would be a benefit. Just reducing your time spent outside when the air is bad will be critical. And then if you are able to time your pregnancy, then I think that would be a benefit too. But more importantly, I think people who are concerned should get their doctor's advice for that.
0: That's Claire Leiser, whose recent study in the journal Fertility and Sterility established a frightening correlation between short-term exposure to elevated air pollution and miscarriage. Claire, want to continue our chat with our first guest? Yes. Well, then, Claire, this is cultural anthropologist Shane McFarlane. And, Shane, this is population health analyst Claire Leiser.
2: Hi, Claire. Nice to meet you.
1: Nice to meet you, Shane.
0: Shane, you were just listening into my conversation with Claire. You live here in Utah also. Was there a question that came up as... We were chatting about pollution and miscarriages.
2: Yeah. uh, I mean, I'm I'm really interested. Like, what kind of advice would you give to a policymaker in Salt Lake City or in the state of Utah to help, you know, push the needle in a new direction for us on air quality?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm not a policy person at all. I'm a scientist. But I think for me, getting some corporations reducing their emissions is a huge thing for me. I also think, you know, if we can find some way to incentivize people to not drive during the inversions, then I think that will have an effect, too. It's a complicated question. And,
2: like, what do you think, I mean, about, like, you know, individuals who are thinking of starting a family? I mean, do you suggest that they leave Salt Lake or is it just like go buy a mask and deal with it or plan your births around the inversions, basically? like,
1: That's another hard question. I mean, I... Definitely don't suggest people leave Salt Lake. I love it here. I think it's a great community. It's one of those things that we're just gonna have to decide as a community what we are willing to put up with, right? How much research do we need to really tell us that air pollution is bad for our health and our kids? I don't really think we should be telling people what to do with their own pregnancies, but like I said, like if it were me, I would be concerned and I would try and plan my pregnancy so it's outside of the inversion. But once again, I think people should consult with their doctors because it's a hard question and it's really complicated and a deeply personal question. Yeah, sure, yeah.
2: certainly. It's probably unfair of me to ask that. Sorry.
1: <laughs> no, no, that's fine. People always do, and I just don't have the best yeah. answers for it.
2: Shane, do you have a family? Are you thinking about starting a family? I do have a family. I have a wife and three children, and one of whom was born here in Salt Lake City, and we often are worried that... You know, allergies that she might get are related to things like air quality and including our growth and development of our other two children that we have who were born in other cities.
1: It's just a community problem, right? And we all have to work together to come up with some solutions. And they're not going to be easy, I don't think. And we might have to try a bunch of different things, but we have to try something, in my opinion, to make a change.
2: I mean, clearly there are models on the planet of other cities that have mm-hmm. reduced air quality problem in mean, Mexico City, mm-hmm. LA, I mean, are two good examples. And yeah, I hope we move in that direction. Yeah.
1: <laughs> if they can do it, why not us? Exactly.
2: Right. Um, you found that nitrous dioxide was a primary cause for the preterm births or miscarriages. Are there other pollutants that people should be aware of beside nitrous dioxide or?
1: The main one that you always hear about is the particulate matter, right? So PM 2.5 is, the main concern that we have for pregnancies. And PM2.5 is actually just a conglomeration of a bunch of different pollutants, nitrogen dioxide being one of them. And in our study, actually, we did show an increased risk related to PM2.5. It just wasn't statistically significant, but we did show that there was an increased risk.
0: Claire, let's turn back to war and marriage. When you were listening to my conversation with Shane, was there something that you wanted to know that maybe I didn't ask?
1: Yeah, I'm curious, have you looked at any effects on the women and children in these tribes because of these raids or any of these warfare um, practices?
2: So I myself haven't, but some of my colleagues have performed research on the long-term effects of warfare on women. Uh, One of the things that did occur in these kinds of groups in the past is raiding for women. And so you go and raid a community, and it's what's known as bride capture. And so you forcibly take a female and bring her back with you. It's a rarity uh, in this population, but it did occur though. And so clearly there are psychological effects, uh, physical effects that that come with this as well. But I would say these situations are also like kind of autocatalytic in that parents want their children to be tough and fierce in some sense. And so they train them from a young age to be comfortable with killing. And so fathers will take children on their first raid many times to teach them how to do it. And so women and children are affected by this stuff psychologically, physically. But then again, it's part of the cultural package that is sort of part of the cyclic warfare that we see in these kinds of communities.
1: So I think one of the things that I noticed a connection from both of our research projects here is that they're both natural experiments, right? So you're looking at these sort of natural experiments of these small scale societies. And we're really relying on the the natural variation of air pollution here in the valley. So I thought that was an interesting connection between our two projects.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, the correlational nature of our analyses, these are not true experiments right. in the way that a psychologist or some medical practitioner might design. And as a result, there's always a little bit of uncertainty about, mm. you know, what is the causative nature of these things. But generally, you know, correlation is a precursor to causation. And so I definitely wouldn't rule it out as an important factor. And so I would totally agree that if there are better ways to design our experiments to actually get at the root cause of these issues, uh, whether it's miscarriages or warfare in marriage, that would be really wonderful. I think you're gonna have better time with it than I will in the future. <laughs> my data sets so yeah. are much harder to come by. Right.
0: <laughs> well and you can't design an experiment for either of these things, yeah. right? Because we can't put humans at risk of all of the bad things that happen with air pollution by mm. exposing their lungs intentionally. That would be unethical. And of course,
2: Precisely you,
0: you can't set up a, a raid.
2: Nope. (laughs) And people are trying to simulate those kinds of studies using, like, uh, agent-based modeling, so computer modeling, to get at the root cause of some of this stuff. And also looking at how um, sports teams compete with one another and how individuals on, like, competitive teams engage in alliance formation afterwards. But that, you know... Yeah. A game of volleyball and basketball right. is not the same thing as <laughs> raiding another community. Yeah. I could, see an, yeah. I could
0: see an intrepid researcher like arming a bunch of undergraduates with Nerf guns, <gasps> yeah. and, you know, standing there with a clipboard.
2: I, I wouldn't be surprised if such yeah. a study hadn't been completed yet. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Both of your studies are about life and death, about the decisions that we make as collective groups that impact the lives of individuals. How has your research impacted the way you think about the power of individuals in society?
1: I think when we're talking about environmental exposures, to me, we are really talking about our whole community, right? So the amount that I drive affects a pregnant woman in my community, and that's is sort of the sad truth. So I think to me, I always am trying to think of ways that I can do better in the way I am living my life, especially in light of climate change and everything like that. We are all on the planet together. So at a larger sense, we're all affecting each other in that way. But for this particular study, it is shocking to see that there is a really these real world effects of our decisions to drive or our decisions to pollute. In Salt Lake City, particularly.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, the way I think about both, like my warfare study and your study on air pollution, I mean, these are problems of cooperation and conflict in some sense. And getting people to cooperate in Salt Lake Valley is really important on reducing things like, you know, the amount of drive time, emissions, and so on and so forth. And the question is, how do we negotiate that? You know, how do we create an environment that promotes more cooperation amongst people rather than us? individualistically kind of competing with one another to get to where we want to get to faster. I'm not necessarily saying that we need to have a war on air quality. (laughs) The wars on various features have not always been successful, but it seems that like we can get greater cooperation amongst people when there is an outgroup that we can compete against. And, you know, maybe we can pit this as a cooperative venture where we're trying to fight our worst inclinations. You know, maybe we can get to a better solution.
1: Yeah, that's a great point.
0: Well, I mean, that is a metaphor that we use a lot, right? The war on whatever. And so let's use that metaphor for a second. There's a war on air pollution, or there probably should be a war on air pollution. How do we get people to do that? Your research, Shane, suggests that we do that by getting people to think about family and their future family.
2: Exactly. That if we're under threat by some existential crisis, whether it's air pollution or something else, it could make us a more cohesive unit. Yeah. I hope.
1: I agree. I think that's a great point. And I think we are work, or we should be working as a community because we are our own little kin group, our own family in some ways.
0: So. We're just about out of time. Shane McFarlane, thank you for joining us on Undisciplined.
2: Thank you. This has been really wonderful.
0: And Claire Lizer, thank you.
1: Thank you. It was a lot of fun.
0: get a recording of this show and all of our programs wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at undisciplined. We recorded today from the KCBW studios at beautiful Library Square in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.